The expulsion of Sephardi Jewry from Spain in 1492 took the largest and most successful Jewish community in the world at the time and literally spread it across the world. And the question is, what happened to it? And how was it able to rebuild? And where? So today... We're here, Yehudi Geberer, with Jewish History Soundbites, another podcast, um, to examine one of those places that Sephardi Jewry built um, in one of the communities across the world. And the one I'll examine and tell a little bit about today is the community of Salonika in Greece. Now, just the name of the city is already a complication. Uh, some refer to it as Salonika, some as Thessaloniki, and some as Saloniki. My personal preference is Saloniki. Um, that's how they pronounce it in Hebrew, so I'm just uh, used to it that way. And uh, who knows if it's the correct way or not. And um, I'd love to hear what the actual Greek uh, correct pronunciation is, if anyone knows. In any event, so referring to the town or city of Saloniki in Greece, which eventually is comes to be and surprising how uh, forgotten this era is, pretty much at one point it's the largest and most successful Jewish community in the world, uh, surprisingly enough. Um, of course, when examining through history, especially um, as as I take groups to Europe and to various different Jewish communities in Europe, and one of the best ways, barometers of measuring a town's size or a community's size or, or length, duration of time, um, although it sounds morbid, is very often we use the Jewish cemetery to tell us that part of the story. Uh, it's always a symbol of what Jewish life was beforehand, and one of the primary points of a visit to almost any place that I go with my tours is to the Jewish cemetery of these either small towns, shtetls, or cities, or countries, wherever it is. And if we use that as a barometer, so Saloniki definitely uh, takes its place amongst Jewish communities in the world. It, its former Jewish cemetery, which no longer exists, um, the Nazis are responsible for that, um, the former Jewish cemetery had over 400,000 Jewish graves. It was almost for sure the largest Jewish cemetery in the world, which says a lot. Uh, I mean, uh, bigger than the one in Warsaw, bigger than any in Yerushalayim or in Israel. Um, um, enormous Jewish cemetery. And that already uh, tells us a little bit about what type of community it was. In any event, the, the early... Jewish community of Saloniki in Greece comes from a very early time, um, possibly even from the time of the second base Hamikdash. Uh, nothing really remains from that time. There is a um, reference that Paul, the disciple of, of Jesus, actually spoke to the Jewish community of Saloniki. It's recorded in the New Testament, although that's um, not always the best source to use um, for how Jewish communities were and developed. So, in the, in the Byzantine era, the post-Roman Empire, there was a Jewish community there. 
it was a non Ashkenazi, non Sephardi Jewish community. It was a a they didn't they weren't connected to either Ashkenazim of France and Germany or to the Sephardim in Spain. They were their own different type of Jew. There is a certain there are certain small places in Israel and other places in the world where where such Jews still exist. Um, similar to the Jews of Rome, where they're also their own stream of of uh, Judaism. Um, the, that community falls into decline. That's not what I'm going to talk about today. It falls into decline over the over over the years. There is some Ashkenazi immigration for a period of time in the Middle Ages, but that also falls into decline. And ultimately, in the mid 1400s, there's in a census that's taken in. The mid 1400s, there's no Jews recorded in the city, so that community emigrates, disappears. Not not much left of it. But what does happen is the expulsion from Spain. Like I mentioned, 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella they expel the Jews from Spain, ending a very very long and glorious history of Spanish Jewry, Sephardi Jewry, and. The story of the last 500 years of Sephardi Jewish history is really two, you could really divide Sephardi Jewish history into two sections. There's before the expulsion and after the expulsion. Before the expulsion, Sephardi Jewry is principally located in Spain, although not exclusively, and that's the center of Jewish life, and there's a lot to talk about in its own right. And then in the post-expulsion era, the, really the story is the struggle of Sephardi Jewry to resettle, to rebuild, um, in some places more successful than others. In some places, they kind of integrate into existing Jewish communities, and therefore it does have more of a me more measured success, such as in Iraq, Baghdad, which was Bavel. There was always a Jewish community there, and the Sephardi Jewry just added to Nazi Israel, also Syria, a lot of the area of the uh, Middle East. Uh, to a certain extent, also Morocco and other places, they were rebuilding from scratch, um, and and even in those places, they were somewhat successful. The Jewish uh, Sephardi Jewish community of Amsterdam became one of the richest in the world. Um, they were very involved in the ex the age of exploration of the New World, and they were the inventors of the first stock market in the world um, in Amsterdam. Uh, the Dutch East India Company, that's a story in itself, the Jewish community of Amsterdam, perhaps. We'll get to it at another opportunity. So they, they, the story of, of Sardi Jury in the post-expulsion era is of rebuilding, renewal, struggles to find themselves, finding the country that will allow them in. Many countries don't. And one of the places that they do find refuge is in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire welcomes Sardi Jews, and the uh, Turkish Jewish community and all the areas under the Ottoman Empire at the time, which is why Eretz Yisrael and other places in the Middle East are successful at at uh, at building um, exile uh, communities of Spanish exiles, is because the Ottoman Empire allows the men, being that it's a Muslim empire, it gives the Jews what's called in Islamic lands dimi status, which is a tolerated status. Any infidel who does not belong to the Muslim religion, such as Christians or Jews, they are relegated to the dimi status. They have certain limitations on where they're allowed to live and what occupation they can have and other sort of limitations. But the principal limitation is, or limitation, the principal reality of life as a dimi 
is is um, is the taxes that they have to pay. They have to pay special taxes for the privilege of living in a Muslim country, even though they're not Muslim. But they were tolerated, and they were rather welcome to develop the economy. They were seen as a as a boon um, and as an asset. So so they settled down in all areas of the Ottoman Empire. And Greece is under the Ottoman Empire at the time. So Salonika, which is a port city um, in Greece, becomes a center of Jewish life. And this, they rise and become, um, through the 15 and 1600s, the 16th and 17th century, they rise to become the, the largest or one of the largest, definitely the richest, one of the most influential Jewish communities in the world, Ashkenazi or Sephardi. And it's mainly in the economic sense. It's really in all areas, cultural, educational, spiritual. They have some tremendous rabbis at that time, Rabbi Yaakov ben Choviv, who wrote the Sefer Ein Yaakov on the Agadita Gemaras of Shas. It's such a classic Sefer that everyone uses it till today. Um, it was used everywhere across Europe in almost every shtetl where they had the simple laborers, the working men who would learn between Mincha and Meir, they had a Chabura, some of them were in a Chevra Mishnayis or in a Chevra Tehillim. Many of them had a Chevra Ein Yaakov, where they would study Ein Yaakov together, and that became actually a feature of shtetl life in all the stories and all the histories and all the memoirs. And the Ein Yaakov is written by a Spanish exile, Yaakov ben Chaviv. Not only that, the ben Chaviv family becomes one of the greatest rabbinic families in Saloniki for the remainder of its time. In fact, the last unofficial chief rabbi of Saloniki, um, who was beloved amongst the Jews of Saloniki, um, uh, was a fellow by the name of Reb Chaim Chaviv. And he was from the same family. He was a descendant of Reb Yaakov ben Chaviv, the, um, the Ein Yaakov. And it goes straight. He's the first rabbi, essentially. The Ein Yaakov is one of the first rabbis he lives there right after the Spanish uh, exile. Um, he's one of the first great Jewish leaders in Saloniki. And the last Jewish rabbi in Saloniki is Reb Chaim Chaviv. And he goes with the Jews of Saloniki and is killed with them in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Um, so you see how it, the same family, or one of the families, there's definitely many dominant rabbinical families living in Saloniki, but it's straight through the whole time. So it really, in every sense, Saloniki becomes uh, the center of Jewish life. I would want to focus for a minute on the economic sphere because that's really what made them uh, unique and that's really was what enabled them to be able to support all the yeshivas and educational institutions and to bring in some of the great Rabbanim from Eretz Yisrael, which they tended to do, especially in later times, the 19th century, is because they were uh, very economically successful. And one of the interesting things about Saloniki Jewry is that it was one of the only Jewish communities throughout the history of the exile through the Gullus that Jews participated in every part of economic life. They very, very often, and most often, there was a stereotypical area of where Jews dominated. In the Middle Ages, in Christian Europe, it was money lending. Later on, it was in, uh, in uh, um, certain periods of time, it was textile, Certain periods of time, it was being peddlers in in uh, finance in more modern times um, in different countries. And here in Saloniki, they really dominated every sphere of of the economy. There were 
um, there were small laborers, um, the merchants, industrialists, bankers, um, doctors, uh, uh, farmers. They grew tobacco. The tobacco trade was uh, was was uh, they were importers, exporters. Remember that um, Saloniki is a port city, and they worked even in the ports. And many of them were longshoremen, porters, ship owners. Um, they controlled the port. They owned it. Saloniki Port, which is one of the main centers of the Mediterranean Sea commerce, and one of the main venues during that time to bring um, merchandise from North Africa, from the Middle East to the continental mainland of Europe. And Saloniki is one of the main thoroughfares. And here, one of the busiest ports, Saloniki, is closed on Shabbos. This was the most incredible feature about Saloniki Jewish life, is that the Jews so dominated the port at all levels, from the porters to the longshoremen, to the ship owners, to the actual owners of the merchandise, and the ones who had the rights to the imports and exports at the port were all Jews, and, and, the, and they were from Jews, they were religious Jews. And the port was closed, they were traditional Jews, they cl- it was closed on Shabbos, there was no, nothing to talk about, and all commerce stuff. Eventually, in modern times, they gave the Jews an official right, after it was already under the Greeks, it was no longer under the Turkish Muslims, the Ottomans, it was under the Greeks after the first Balkan War in 1913. The Jews got a special right to work on Sunday, which they had to get a special uh, license to do, and to not work on Shabbos. So, so important they were for the local trade. And the, the, um, the, um, they, were, they were the majority of the population. At, at, at its peak, the Jews of Saloniki reached 68% of the population of the city. And that, that, that translates into a tremendous influence in the educational sphere. One of the, you know, whenever people think of yeshivas, they think of the Litvish yeshiva world. If you're a drop more open-minded, you think of the Hasidish world as well as having yeshivas. Um, actually, one of the largest and most famous and definitely the best-funded yeshiva in history was in Saloniki and it lasted for a couple of hundred years. It was a very unique institution called the Chevras Talmud Torah Hagadol, and I imagine they pronounced it as Chevrat Talmud Torah Hagadol. It's the Svarti Jewry, and it was founded in Saloniki in the early 1500s. It lasted well into the 1700s. You're talking about it was around for probably about 200 years, and and it was a, a not 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 it wasn't. A yeshiva per se, it was an organization that uh, organized um, uh, the educational activities for the Jews of Saloniki, and and one among amongst them was also the yeshivas. And what they did was they were mainly a they were a semi um, they were semi recognized by the official Jewish community. But the Jewish community in Saloniki was so large and so diverse. Talking about a Jewish community the size of of, of 60, 70,000, maybe even more of exact numbers, and it also depends on which period of time because it had its ups and downs. Um, but he told in the tens of thousands, the upper tens of thousands, one of the largest Jewish communities in the world in the 16th and 17th centuries, for sure over 60,000 Jews live there. And, um, and, the, and, the, and there's 30 different recognized communities. And these communities 
is that each one had a shul and each one had a rabbi and each kahila, each kahal was called, was named after a different community back in Spain. So there was the Castile exile community and the Aragon exile community and so on. And there was 30 such communities. And there was this overall organization called the Chevrat Talmud Torah HaGadol. And they organized educational activities. They funded any Jewish children who could not afford tuition, who could not afford education. They raised funds that he should be able to go to school as well. They, um, they funded yeshivas. They gave a weekly stipend for the Bacharim to learn in yeshiva. They funded the salaries for the Russia yeshiva and for people who gave shiurim. They, they, they raised funds to build buildings for the yeshivas. And they had a big, beautiful building, which was the main yeshiva that they called the Talmud Torah Hagadol, the great Talmud Torah. And, uh, and they, they actually became very active in Jewish life. They eventually ent- entered the social sphere. They start giving subsidies to poor people within the community. They start offering other types of social services, not only for Saloniki, but around the area. And they become powerful enough that they start making takanas, which they called haskamot, because you have to agree. You have to be maskim. You have to agree to their takanas. Everyone's maskim, so it's called haskamot. And, um, and uh, everyone, they, they collect, they took, uh, they, they took off part of the taxes that the Jewish kahila raised. They took to be able to fund their social activities. There was special taxes, like in most of the Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, there were special taxes on kosher meat. And that existed in, in, uh, in uh, Saloniki as well. It was called the Jebelia. And, the, and they took a percentage of those taxes for their activities. They eventually got into investments. They invested in real estate, in buildings, and this made it a self-funding institution. They were able to self-fund a lot of their activities and really have a tremendous influence on Jewish life. Not only that, but because they provided free clothing for a lot of the students and they, 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 um, they bought a lot of clothing from the great textile owners, the main trade for Saloniki Jewry for many, many years was the textile trade. The Ottoman Turkish Empire bought the uniforms from the wool of the Jews of Saloniki. That's probably the best possible contract to have in the world at the time. The entire Ottoman army used Saloniki Jews' wool. And it was the best quality wool, and they paid a good price for it. And for a long time, that was the main, main reason why Saloniki Jewry prospered in the economic sphere. And actually, when the wool trade went down, that was the beginning of the decline um, for sure, economically, of, of Saloniki Jewry. And, and, um, and this Chevrat Talmud Torah Gadol had an influence in the wool trade because they bought so much clothing as well. And not only that, but they, they caused the printing presses to be successful in Saloniki. Saloniki had a printing press for many years and printed many, many svarim at the time were printed there. And because this Chevrat Talmud Torah who took care of the yeshivas, they had to provide svarim for the yeshivas. So they would make these tremendous orders from the printing presses. So they owned the printing presses for a while. They funded the printing presses. And they it were in, it basically they had their, their influence felt in almost every part of, of a Saloniki Jewish life. Um, the, the interesting thing, uh, Saloniki did have its ups and downs. Uh, Shabzai Tzvi himself, during the false Mashiach period of Shabzai Tzvi, lived in Saloniki for a short period of time. And he had an influence there. There were many followers of Shabzai Tzvi. There was economic downturns. 
and in the in the modern era when uh, when Greece defeats Ottoman Turkey, the Ottoman Empire during the first Balkan War in 1913, right immediately preceding World War One. So the Ottoman Turkish Empire loses control over Saloniki and it falls under Greece, which is Christian Greece. It's different. It's a republic, nationalistic. There is a slight rise in anti-Semitism. That can economy changes. There are a lot of changes. There's a lot of emigration from Saloniki. By the time World War II begins, the population had dwindled. They had moved to other parts of the world. Many of them actually moved to Israel, where because they were people of a port city and had such experience, they're the ones who built the Haifa port. They're the ones involved in the early days and the only days that Tel Aviv's port was active. And they, they developed a lot of the sea uh, import and export trade of, of Israel under the British mandate and in the early years of the state. And they, the, um, the, the last rabbis, interestingly enough, of Saloniki were both from the last ones in the, in the early part of the 20th century. The last rabbi, as I mentioned earlier, was Reb Chaim Chaviv, who was killed in Auschwitz. But before that, you had Israeli-born rabbis. This is before the state. This is from the Sephardi Jewish community in the Ottoman Turkish period, who later became the Sephardi chief rabbis of Israel, both of them, Rabbi Yaakov Meir and Rabbi Sion Chayu Zil, who were both very prominent Sephardi chief rabbis in Israel. Both of them had a stint as chief rabbis of Saloniki, and they maintained very close ties with Israel. There was uh, one of the only Sephardi Jewish communities that had active Zionist uh, political life in the interwar period. And Saloniki, um, which was decimated and completely destroyed by the Nazis, it was almost the only Sephardi Jewish community that was completely wiped out in the gas chambers of Auschwitz, which is a story in itself. But it had its place in Jewish history as one of the most glorious uh, Jewish communities in both the spiritual and, uh, and economic and almost in every other sense. This was Yehudi Gabra with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at uh, ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course trips to Saloniki, to Greece, to every other place in the world that had a Jewish community and has a rich Jewish past. And of course follow uh, Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Don't miss a podcast. You can subscribe. And you can also follow Jewish History Soundbites on Twitter at J Soundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.